This is The Lydia Project, Conversations with Christian Women. Our name is inspired by the life-changing conversation that Lydia had with Paul, recorded in Acts 16. On this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of women whose lives have also been impacted by the truth of the gospel. Your hosts, Tori Walker and Taryn Hayes, hope that you too will be challenged and inspired by how the gospel truths are being worked out in the lives of their guests, ordinary women who serve an extraordinary God. Today, your host is Taryn Hayes. Hello, Lydia listeners, and welcome to episode 56 of The Lydia Project. Now, while it is our 56th episode, it is also, in fact, only our second episode on our new platform. If you've listened to the last few episodes, you'll know that we've moved the podcast to the Podbean platform to give the Lydia Project a little more scope to grow within the time that we have to give. We will definitely miss the support and care we've received from the Gospel Coalition, but the plan is to touch base from time to time in the future with them. What does this all mean for you, the listener? Not too much. In fact, you can now find us on almost every podcast platform, and we've started to include our episode notes in an easy-to-access way directly from wherever you get your, your podcasts. Um, we've also had some really positive feedback from folk. Recently, I received a message from someone who spoke of how encouraged she was to hear from older women, and how, as a result, she had felt motivated to seek out older, in-real-life Christian women to read the Bible with. I love hearing stories like that. Tori loves hearing stories like that. We actually love to hear how you came across a podcast. We love to hear where and when you listen, which which episodes have been really encouraging or thought-provoking, and even what you would love to hear more about. If you've often thought you'd like to drop us a note or, or tell us a little bit about your thoughts, go ahead. Please don't hesitate. You can chat to us on Facebook, Instagram, or even email us at tlpcwcw at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Of course, you're probably keen to get on with hearing from our next guest. So let me give a brief introduction to our guest, Anne Austin. Many years ago, when I first met Anne, she said something that has stuck with me ever since. She said that the emergency room is no place to figure out your theology. It was a tragic event that caused her to have to think about the statement quite carefully and a story that she shares quite openly in the interview. You'll notice a few things in our chat today. One will be Anne's beautiful Southern American accent and the other one will be the not so beautiful audio glitches. As with many of our latest Zoom interviews, sometimes the audio quality glitches and this time there are quite a few, but we've cleaned it up as best as possible. And hopefully Anne's story and wisdom will be what you remember most from this delightful and very encouraging conversation. Welcome to the Lydia Project, Anne. It's really lovely to have you with us today. Well, it's lovely to be here. All the way across the ocean, it's lovely. (laughs) It is. I'm hoping our sound is going to hold up well. We're zooming and it's not easy, but let's let's see how we go. I'm just going to dive into our very first question and uh, hopefully we'll get to hear a lot of your story as we speak through these questions. And I know you've got a lot of wisdom to share and I'm very much looking forward to hearing it. But our first question is, how did you come to faith in Christ? I came to faith in Christ in college. I was a speech pathology major in college, and I considered myself a Christian. I'd been reared in a a wonderful Christian home and knew 
and consider, as I said, considered myself a Christian. But while I was in college, I was uh, reading my little devotions every night, and I was reading through the book of Romans. And I came apart, came uh, came up to the part that said that all of sins and had fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin are death. And it struck me. I know it was the spirit struck me that I had never recognized that. And part of the problem of growing up, not a real problem of growing up in a Christian home because the advantages outweigh everything, of course, is that I was a good little girl. And and I was. <laughs> I didn't get into trouble and I was part of the church group and I was told I was good. And I really had nobody telling me that before God, I needed to acknowledge my sin and, and bow before him. So I I don't regret growing up the way I did. And as part of my, what we'll probably talk about the rest in this hour, will point to the fact that it was all to my benefit that I grew up the way I did. But at that moment, I had never recognized my sin. And uh, that's when I just really pegged my time is that when I was consciously, I knew that I needed a savior from then on. So that was way back in the early 70s while I was a, a university student. Oh, wow. And from there, how did you grow in your your walk with the Lord? Well, it's just been um, gradual. I was married. My first husband died when we were first married. He was He was a Christian. We had a Christian home. <laughs> and so we went to good churches. And it was back in 1975, I was in, living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and we were in a, uh, went to a, like a convention, really, on Reformed theology, and just heard some fantastic speakers like J.I. Packer and uh, R.C. Sproul and Roger Nicole. And that is when my first husband and I really realized that we needed to be actively growing in our faith. And that was that was like mid-70s. I was blessed with a Christian husband, and we made good choices, I guess we would say, with churches. And we just grew through Bible studies and fellowships in in our churches. So that's that's how we've kind of grown our group. It must have been such a wonderful uh, conference to go to to hear such great leaders and teachers of the Bible. And lately I've been hearing from people a lot about how the good Bible teaching has really convicted them and grown them. So I'm very encouraged to hear your story as well. Now, you've said that your first husband died. Do you mind sharing the story of what happened? That, that's really the one thing that um, I'm always happy to do, even though it's very a difficult time, of course, you can imagine. But I'll just tell you how it was. My first husband was a naval officer. He went to the United States Naval Academy, so that meant that we traveled uh, around a lot in the world and in the United States. He was a naval officer. 
but at a time in his life when he was working as a mechanical engineer at a nuclear power plant, he really felt that the Lord was calling him out of uh, secular work and into uh, full-time Christian ministry. So he, we packed up and <laughs> sold, you know, things that we could sell and, and, and moved down to Columbia, South Carolina. And at that time, we had our daughter, Anna, was four. And so for a year, we were at the Columbia, people would know it as Columbia Bible College, the graduate school at Columbia Bible College. Now it's called Columbia International University. But we were, he was in getting his Master Divinity. And after a year of study, the summer after that first year, he just died without warning, very unexpectedly, of a cardiac arrest. He went to sleep and he, his heart stopped. Wow. And so we at that time were living with, in a little married student housing. And I, it's, we would call it a trailer. I'm not sure. I forget what the, what the Commonwealth would call it. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> everyone knows trailer. trailer. Yeah. <laughs> a trailer. And I remember he was 32. And I was 30 and Anna was four. And we had plans. He was going into some form of full-time ministry. We, at that time, we didn't know whether he was thinking of going into back into the Navy uh, as a Navy chaplain, or we, we were looking at Wycliffe Bible translators. We were just open. It was just open to what the Lord would have us. And then he died. And I remember going to the emergency room casualty unit at, our, at the nearby hospital. And there was a time when we, I wasn't sure what was actually happening because they were working on him. The EMT paramedics were working on him and in the hospital, the doctors and the nurses. So I didn't, there was a time when I didn't know when, what was really happening and I was alone because some people had not yet been able to get to me and my friends, I mean. And so I remember when the nurse came out to tell me that they were very sorry. The doctor said that he, they didn't understand why he was a fit young man, but is, he, he had died. And I remember thinking, to, and I remember just stopping and thinking to myself, now, Anne, what are you going to think about this? It was, it was just a moment. And I remember thinking, has God for a second taken his eyes away from us? H has he? And now he's going to put it back together. I was just sorting through what has happened here. And then they thought came to me, and I know it's by the spirit of God's sovereignty. And I took that and I knew, I thought to myself, God is sovereign and he is in control. And that I grabbed that. So all, any other thoughts of there is 
tumbles and things out of control and uh, what to think, those were laid aside because I didn't know really what was happening, but I knew whatever was going, what was happening was under God's, was in his control. Yeah. If you want me to, I can keep going because this is all part of what I love to tell people. Please um, keep going. Before that, before I was told definitely that Jimmy had indeed died, I was praying in the casualty unit by myself, waiting room, and another thought came to me that God was good. Mm -hmm. And so I grabbed onto that even before, that what was happening, I didn't understand it, but that God himself was good. And I just hung on to that, that I didn't understand it, <laughs> what, what was good. So those two things were like anchors to me that very night, that God was in control and that he was good. And it helped me that night. It helped me day by day, even later, because later on, I thought more about these things, about the fact of God's character and the sovereignty part that he was in control helped me so much because then I knew, thinking back to Jimmy, that he was in control. He had always been in control. He knew Jim from the moment before he was born until this moment when he was taking his last breath, that he was in control and that I could trust him. Uh, it was a matter of trust. Then I could trust God for my life too and for Anna's life too, although I did not understand it did not yeah. understand it so it was it helped me it also kept me away from those awful the plague of the whys mm -hmm. why why now why jim why now i i didn't go there i really didn't because i knew it all was hidden up into god's into his it was in his character in his sovereignty in his control and that frankly i later on i thought well and if the lord would ever even show you that why why he's taken jim would you have would you be content with it and i figured i probably wouldn't so god's sovereignty it really settled me down i trusted god and i knew that he was good now the good part <laughs> what I considered good was not jiving with <laughs> what was happening. And what I considered good is a human perspective. I'm so limited. I was so, and still am, so limited by my body, by my mortalness. And so what's good to me is happy, happiness and good health and children doing well and some security and all these things and they are good but there that's not the limit of good and that's not the definition of good and i had to leave it with the lord that he has a different perspective on the true issue of goodness because he has an, an eternal perspective on goodness and i can only see the human side of it mm -hmm. and I realized that 
my, I'm just so fleshly in what I considered good. And what I think about that is Good Friday. We call Good Friday, and we know why we call it Good Friday, because the most wonderful thing for us has happened to us. But it wasn't good in the human sense when our Lord was cru crucified on and went through the worst pain and separation from, the, from God, the Father. But we still call it Good Friday, and we all understand it. So when I say good, it, it has to be bigger <laughs> than the circumstances. So that's why you, uh, Taryn, you had said something to me earlier about that I had once years ago said that the, that the emergency room or the casualty unit is no place to figure out your theology. Yeah. And this is why. Yeah. <laughs> because then I was glad that I had been reared in a, in a Christian home and sat under good teaching <laughs> that maybe I'd, I wasn't even quite aware of, but that I had been taught that God was sovereign, he was in control, and he was good. And these were his parts of his, char his character. And the theology, one's theology, it's too, you don't want to have to figure things out in the emergency room. I was very grateful that mm -hmm. it was there in my mind. But that day in the emergency room, he went to my heart. And that's only by the Spirit. And he doesn't zap us with knowledge that we don't already have. So that's my encouragement is for women, particularly, to store away what they know of, about God. Because our lives are so, as women, they're so full of change. Mm. And I'm in a way different season of life than I was in 1981. Yeah. I'm in a different season of life than I was 10 years ago because now they're calling me elderly. Though <laughs> <laughs> so I don't feel elderly, but my children are, have all grown up. I have grandchildren. I'm not doing those same things. My circumstances have changed. My circumstances have changed since two years ago when Tom was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. So if I would peg my Christian walk on my circumstances, then I would have a roller coaster of a life, of a life of faith. And if I would, I have to always remember that my walk of faith needs to be based on the character of God because he doesn't change. If I have to tell anybody anything, a woman anything, is that in the seasons of life, with so much changes going on, I think there are more changes for us than men, frankly, because we, we respond to the changes within our families yeah. <laughs> um, so much as women that what our children are doing affects us and what our husbands are friends. And we just, that's, I think that's the way the Lord wired us up. If we, if our life of faith is on our circumstances, they're not always going to be the same. And so our faith will maybe wobble and will go up or down. But if it's based on the character of God, particularly I look for me is his character of his sovereignty and his goodness. The Lord is good.
Yeah. There was one more little thing I want to say because it comes up and it's come up a lot, I think, during this COVID-19 issue we're having that it came to me during that time of recovering and going through the stresses of grief that I came across Isaiah 45, 7, where the Lord says, he is, I am the Lord in calamity. Mm. He says, I bring prosperity and I am the Lord in, in calamity. And even in times of calamity, he, he doesn't change that we can trust him in times of calamity. And so I've come back to that scripture these past few weeks when it seems like the whole world has, has come to some form of, of calamity. Mm-hmm. So that is, that is what I would say, and I've been happy to say it for years. The, the other thing was that there came a time when I looked at Psalm 40, it was a great help to me because in that psalm, it says that the Lord took me out of a miry pit and set me upon the rock. And the Lord did do that. And he didn't keep me in a, he kept me from a very bad, dark place. And so he, that was true for me. And I had, I had a lot of fear of becoming depressed because I had been around some depressed people in my family before. And I had a fear of it, but kept me from that. And he did give me a new song, as that psalm says. And eventually I met Tom and we eventually went to Kenya as missionaries and I had another little girl and just lovely, lovely, wonderful life. But I have to say, I had given that testimony about God's character many times long before that new song came long before Tom Austin came around because it it was true whether I had that new song to sing or not, God's character was the same for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, your story has always touched me and hearing it again, it's like hearing it afresh and, and yet what really resonated with me the very first time I heard your story was that statement about that the emergency room is no place to be (laughs) making your theology. And the truth of that is it's so huge, but I think the thing that made me, that really struck me is how easy it is to be blown about by the winds of change and the winds of emotion and to know who Jesus is and to be rock solid about his sovereignty and his grace and his love and his goodness in a time like that is a wonderful anchor and a wonderful gift. And I know that not all Christians, even with that knowledge, are able to really anchor down in that, in that, in that time of trauma. But I'd, I love that in your case, that really was a, a big anchor for you and, and allowed you to keep walking in faith and sharing your faith with others and, and sharing the gospel. And I know that your story has impacted a lot of people over the years. And I'm so grateful that you're willing to share it and keep sharing it because it's, it's good. Well, it was, it's yeah. my pleasure. It's the one thing I'm, one of the things I'm always, I will never say no to when someone would ask, but I do want to make clear. I, there was terrible grief. And I I want, because you brought that up, 
it wasn't that I was, you know, jumping from building to building and <laughs> like a superwoman. It, it was a terrible grief. Mm. And God's mm. comfort, what I learned, is, is no anesthetic. It's not, it's not anesthetic, anesthesia. It, you don't go numb. I mean, you do maybe when terrible things happen. That's another great thing. Sometimes people, you are allowed to not feel something completely for a while, but the grief does come and the wound is deep. So God's comfort was not an anesthetic but it was a rock and it was solid and it was there. And so there were tears and there were, you know, I lost probably 10, 20 pounds. I mean, I, you know, I couldn't eat. There's grief, but it was a rock. I have to say, and I'm sure other people who've gone through horrific can testify to that. There's what I would call dying grace. There's things that the Lord helps us go through, and it's through the pain, and it's it's through the pain. It's not out of the pain. It's yeah. through the pain. Yeah. And so I do have a lot of sympathy for people that maybe feel weak, and I felt weak too. I just, when I say that I depended on it, those thoughts would come to me and I, I am grateful for that grace that he gave me to go forward and not to fall into the pit. But yeah. there was terrible yeah. grief. Yeah, yeah. And understandably, thank you for clarifying that because I think, mm -hmm. I, I don't know, as humans, we, we so often like to be able to put things into boxes and to separate things out. But to know that in the midst of the pain and the hurt and the grief, and you can still have a, a solid notion that God is sovereign and have him walk you through that grief is is really comforting yeah and you met Tom how many years later oh just well actually I'd met him before okay. before Jimmy Jimmy died because Tom was he was a student at Columbia as well and the first when Jim and I Jimmy and I first moved to Columbia we were out looking for a new church and one night, one evening service, we visited the church where Tom was, was a member. And I remember Jimmy introduced me. He was a classmate. So I knew who he was. And I just, I had met him. But we actually got to know each other. After Jim died, I, as I said, I was a speech pathologist. And I was at that time doing some teaching. And I just felt that the Lord was leading me to get out of that and to go into, to see what he would do with me uh, on a full-time Christian basis. What, what would the Lord do with me? Because I was already there, you know, at this seminary and I was in the marriage student housing and, and it just seemed right. And I looked to other people or counsel good Christians, and they agreed that it would be a good thing, as all widows should do. Don't make big changes. Stay where you are. And so I entered the Master of Divinity program, and I was the only woman there back in, back in the, that was 81. And I didn't know what the Lord was going to do with me. I was, I didn't know whether I would, maybe, I was hoping that I would teach Bible, maybe at a, at a university, college level, so I was thinking, all right, I'll get my PhD, but I'll start now. And so I, I got into that. 
so I entered the MDiv program, Master of Divinity program. And as part of that, we were put into what they call koinonia groups, little prayer groups. And it's just a time where students group together and pray. And Tom was in that group. And that's how I really met him. And also, I have to say, now, this will probably get blurped out, but I would, when he was one of the few men students who, um, when, when talking to me, most of the guys, I would be in, this, in the student union, you know, eating, you know, snacks and everything and just kind of being with the other students. And the men would say, well, because I was the only woman there, um, are you going to preach? Oh. And I would say, no, I'm not planning on preaching. I'm, you know, all that. And I remember the first time I really talked to Tom, he stopped and we were just chatting and he never asked that question. He just wanted to know about me and what I was doing. And I got the strangest feeling because he had never asked that question like everybody else had asked that. So we met at there and he was on his way to, at that time, he thought he was going to be a missionary to Zimbabwe. That's what I knew about him. And that changed later to, to Kenya. But when I first met him, he was on his way to Zimbabwe. So in fact, when he asked me to marry him, he asked me, how do you feel about moving to Africa and being a missionary wife? And I said, well, how do you feel about being a father? And he said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by that time, Anna was six. And so the Lord just put us together quickly and changed my plans. And not really Tom's. He just married me. <laughs> he was just, he, he was a navigator and had, he was 36 at the time. Thought he wasn't going to ever marry and then ended up marrying me and got a family to boot and had a little six-year-old girl. And so it was a love, it's a lovely story. Our story is very, that's another whole issue is how the Lord brought us together quickly and knit, knitted our hearts together and made us, made me just willing to go to Africa. I thought it was Zimbabwe. It turned out it was Nairobi, Kenya. And he's been a wonderful father to Anna. That is daddy to her. Oh my goodness, he's daddy. And so it's just, it is a, a lovely story, a lovely story. And then Rebecca came along. When about was that? Oh, we moved to Nairobi in 1985, and she came along two years later. I had to kind of test the waters about I, had, I wanted to get settled to see what life in Africa was going to be. So she was born in 1987 in Nairobi. When um, about 14 years later, well, not really, maybe 12 years later, we moved to Cape Town from Kenya. She remembers Kenya very well, but what's probably home to her in Africa is South Africa. That's, mm -hmm. that's where she was a middle school. That's where you knew her, Taryn. That's she. Right. That's where she gets her identity of Africa, really much more, in, I think, in South Africa than she did in Kenya, because she was 12 when she moved down there, and it, it was very impactful for her. Yeah, and that's around about when I would have met her, because I think I, I was her teacher when she was in grade seven, so 
around about that's the right. right age. That's yeah. right. That's exactly, that's exactly right. She left a part of her heart in Africa and uh, she was able to go back once. Well, she's been back several times, but after she married Scott, she felt it was important that he would see South Africa and she thought it would explain some things about her <laughs> and I think it did. She's what you call both of our children are what you call third culture kids and they you know you I'm sure you with your own children by immigrating you know that there are little different things about your children. You grew up South African and they are being very much impacted in a different way than you are you were by Australia, and that's the same way with Rebecca and Anna. So they're a part of them is will always be something that's not me. They grew up in another culture than, than the culture I grew up in. Yeah, but just getting back to you, the work that you and Tom did in Kenya, what, what was the work specifically that you were involved in? For most of those years, Tom was in theological education. He was a lecturer at a master's level program. It was called NIST, Nairobi International School of Theology. And it was by what people call crew now. It was called Campus Crusade at the, back in the day. And uh, our life ministry is what it was called in Kenya, but it was a school supported by crew. And so he taught missions and a lot of theology courses there. And to African students from all over Africa, it wasn't just Kenyans, there were several Kenyans there, but the school was for any other student coming from another country in Africa, but they, English had to be their, at least their third language second or third language. So it was an English-based, had to be English-based because the students came from all over. So what I did was, this was, I taught in the women's program. And what made NIST unique was, unlike some other theological institutes in Africa, NIST required that the men bring their wives with them and not leave them back in their home countries or home areas, even in Kenya. And so we tried to provide a good program for their wives. And it wasn't degrees, but it was a certificate. And it had Bible and theology and practical ministries. So I taught mainly the Bible courses to these women of the, of the master's level students. So here were these men who were all, that are, they were getting their, Americans would call it their master's level. I'm not sure exactly how that translates to Australia. But yeah, these the were all gone through, their, gone through their baccalaureate degrees and then they were going to get their master's. But their wives, some of their wives had gone to high school and college, I mean, university, but many, many, many of them had not. So, this was a very interesting program to have it geared toward women at many different levels of education, as well as different languages, whereas the English was always their second or third language. So it was great because it kept the men and the women together in the ministry, because lots of times in, what would happen in Africa is the men 
would go on and, and get into areas of ministry and the women would be left feeling out of it with maybe just their families and their children and wouldn't have any training or, or background to really minister as uh, pastor's wives. That's what I did there. So I taught mainly, that's what I did there. But mainly I was mama and wife. Uh, yeah. I have to say that because that was my first goal was to provide a haven for Tom and a good family home for our children. And that was my goal. And I, I appreciated our mission. Um, they allowed that for me. They, they recognized that I could do any kind of ministry I wanted. That was not, I wasn't restricted, but that if I would choose to my focus was going to be on home and family. They was very acceptable to okay. the mission. So I appreciate that. That is good. It is good. But, you know, missionary wives, they just bloom where they're planted. And, you know, there's always ministry to do. There is always ministry to do. And I love that they were supportive of your desire to make your primary goal, your family and your husband. I think sometimes Christian organizations and I don't really know why, but I think sometimes the, the temptation is or the tendency is to kind of squeeze out every last bit of juice they can get from their missionary workers and you know, husbands and wives to the detriment of what's going on in the family. And I, I, I do wonder why that is. I mean, maybe it's just you know, lack of resources or I don't know. I don't really know. But I'm really, really encouraged to hear that, that they were supportive of the primary role. And it's been so impactful on the people that you have connected with because you have been such a wonderful role model certainly to me and to many others and that has a wonderful gospel knock-on effect as mm. other women then teach their children and raise their children and and try to live a life that is you know in the light of the gospel and it's focusing on godliness and caring for their family in a way that yeah that presents them jesus which is so important and you mentioned briefly that Tom is not doing well, that he is ill. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And you also mentioned in your notes that you've been talking about a, you know, living by the principles of God's grace and mercy as you're facing this particular mm-hmm. diagnosis now and contentment as well. Yes. Could you speak to those things? Two years ago, our primary care doctor, who is a doctor that works with the mission to the world missionaries when they come back to the U.S. for their little furloughs and home ministry assignments. He and another doctor is in charge of their care. Doesn't take care of all of them, but it it all runs through his. He has records of everything. But if you actually live and work in Atlanta, which we do, we were part of the international group. And so we were based in Atlanta. We had the advantage of he was just our doctor. It was wonderful. And it was where Tom's office was. And he would just go out the back door and go in another door and get in you know, a good health care from our doctor. And two years ago, this evil eye doctor saw a, a count, a blood count and a kidney count that he didn't like. And he referred us to more tests, and it turned out that he, Tom, was in the early symptom, the early stage of multiple myeloma, which is 
a cancer of the white blood cells in the bone marrow. And what happens is the white blood cells who are there, they're there to get rid of infection. But if they get, if they're cancerous, they go rogue and they take over everything. So it causes a lot of problems in your bone marrow, in your bones and your kidneys and different organs. But it was caught early when it was, Tom says, which is you know, theoretical cancer is what he called it. Because <laughs> it was it only it would only show up in blood counts. It had not affected his any of his organs, and so it was called smoldering. So our daughter is a physician. She's an internal medicine doctor and at here in Emory. So when this diagnosis came, she put us to a good one of her colleagues, oncologist, that all he does is multiple myeloma. So he agreed to take Tom's case. And so for up until last October, they were just, every eight weeks, they were just taking blood samples and just watching it, watching it, watching it. And then in last October, they thought it was not safe to keep watching it because the levels were getting higher. So we had to, we agreed to start treatment. And so it's an odd sort of cancer. They don't like to treat it when it's not hurting your body. They, mm -hmm. because the treatment is horrific. It, it's really, it's, it can be deadly to have a bone marrow transplant. So they don't want to put, put you through that. If your body, it, you could, he could have been smoldering for 10 years. And so they just watched. So that's what happened. So last October, he started chemotherapy and it's all getting him ready to have in on June uh, 16th, he will have a, what they call a stem cell transplant. And they've already taken his, uh, his own stem cells. And so they will replace them into his body in, in June after taking him as low as they can get him through chemo, a really hard system, a hard uh, therapy. And they just wipe, just wipe your immune system out. Then they put your good little stem cells that they've been frozen at Embry for a couple, several months, they put it back in and then slowly his own immune system will, will take over. So it means maybe two to three weeks in the hospital while they have to monitor him and make sure without an immune system, make sure he can recover well. So that's what we're facing. On top of it is COVID-19. It happens to be right now. And so as it is now, they are telling me that because of COVID, I'm not gonna be allowed to be with him at all. I'll drop him off and get him settled and then I have to leave until he's ready to be discharged in two to three weeks. So we're praying that I will be able to go with him. But if I do go with him, it's once in, stays in. There's no coming and going. I'll just be right there and I can't leave. I mean, I can, if I leave, I, I can't come back. It's, it's daunting, actually. But I've prayed about it and the Lord has given me just a lot of piece that if it comes to it I will be able I will be able to do that two to three weeks in the hospital with him and if it's not going to be that way that Tom will be able to handle things without me but it's hard because we've been 
we've been together so long. It's a, we've been going through this thing together. So that's where we are. So it's not a happy, we're not looking forward to it, but the Lord's carrying us through. And you mentioned contentment, and that has come up a lot. I was asked two years ago to make uh, a talk, a, make a series of talks on anything I wanted to, to some ladies I'd never met. It was um, her board gave my name to somebody, Laura, Laura's mm -hmm. dad. <laughs> and I had to travel to another state and I picked contentment. And oh, I'm happy I did because I have needed the study. I've referred back in my mind and even the other day I got out my notes just to reread what all I learned for several months of studying. I had, I had a long time, over six, seven months to prepare. It was a series of, of talks I needed to, to make. And I'm glad, and I based it on the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a little book called uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And the fact that it's rare <laughs> struck my, got my eye. And I use that as sort of the basis of looking into what Christian contentment was and, and the pictures that we find in the Bible of Christian contentment. And that's helped me now because I'm in very much in a place where naturally I don't feel content uh, in that of the circumstances. They don't lend themselves to contentment because are like what I would consider good. You know, we talked earlier about, you know, what I consider good is health, good health. And we don't have good health right now. And so I'm looking back at the things that I need to remember about contentment scripturally. And it's a rare jewel because uh, so much in our lives kind of rub away that contentment. I have the potential to rub away that contentment. So that's what I've been looking at. And I can give you some scriptures to know what suffering does. And that was one of the scriptures that meant a lot to me that, you know, what suffering produces in us, in our character. I look to some hard times ahead. I'm constantly doing that's my nature. It's not Tom's nature, but it's my nature. I'm looking ahead, looking ahead, because I don't want to be sideswiped. So I'm looking ahead and I'm praying that the Lord will keep me low before him and dependent and in a way satisfied in a deep sense of what he might do. But that is not to say that I'm going to, in my flesh, be happy with everything that's going to happen, but I'm going to trust him with it. It also comes with my own mortality, because now I'm elderly. Look at those things, and it's my prayer that I will submit myself to a good God, a God who loves me, who has a plan, who has known all my days. And I see that with Tom. He's, he's known Tom. He, he knows the struggles he's putting you know with us he knows all that and that's where that trust has to come from 
that the Lord will take us through. I can take some things. I remember after Jimmy died, I remember thinking, Lord, I can take this out of your hand. I can take it out of your hand because I know it's, it's my father's hand. It's, my, it's a loving hand. I, could, I can take it. I don't understand it but I can take it. Because people would say to you now, you know, you know, the Lord didn't want this to happen to you. And I think, well, who did? You know, you think Satan's involved with, you know? No, I can take it from a, from a hand of a loving father. I've got a quote, and it's not with me, a chancellor of Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, Brian Chapel, once said, we have to believe that God is sovereign and we need to trust that he is good and we have to rely on his grace. And so those are the things, his sovereignty and his goodness and his grace. I just said, I'll have to bow to his grace and I mean, not bow to it, but ask for it and plead for his grace. And it's, I'm praying that Lord, the God will use the medicines, the wonderful medicines that are at Emory University. We're in a fantastic center that's just for multiple myeloma. He's blessed us so much. We are 20 minutes away. We come home at night after our infusion. We don't have to go stay at a B&B &B like so many people do or drive six hours. The Lord has blessed us in that way. So Taryn, I've seen God heal and I've seen God not heal. I've seen it both ways, but it's the same Lord and his grace has been there. So it's only proper to come to him in dependency and to pour out our hearts and my heart's desire is for Tom's good health. And the Lord knows that. And I yeah. need to tr trust his grace to pull us through. And Tom doesn't seem to be struggling. And God's just pouring his grace on him. Just knows the Lord's going to be with him. And everything he's got, that the doctors are going to ask him to do or do to him, he'll be able to do it. And um, he just has a great confidence in the Lord. Probably helps because he's had a physical ailments all his life. And he's continued to go forward with them and trust the Lord to help him go through hard times physically, and the Lord has. And so I think the Lord's prepared him for that part. And yet through you both, you both are presenting the message of, of Christ in, in you and through you and in your personalities and, and how you cope with these things. It's the same message at the end of the day. It's, it's trusting in his sovereignty. How wonderful that you're not carbon copy of each other that it would feel so much like you can only trust in God's sovereignty if you have this kind of personality but to have the same trust in the same God with completely different personalities it shows again that that he is the constant he is the one not us I feel like we've covered it in most of the questions I had for you what would you say is keeping you standing firm and growing as a Christian right now what's helping me it's an odd time in that we are not able to go to church and we're not able to go to our community group and I'm not able to go to our morning life group at the church. And so we are very, we're isolated except for Zoom. So these days, Zoom is doing a lot because 
we have a good small group fellowship and I, I'm doing a Bible study, leading a Bible study on courage, which funny enough, um, that was a good one. We didn't know that COVID was going to hit us. And so now we're already studying a book on courage and how to conquer fear by having a proper fear of the Lord. I'm saying all of those things, it's fellowship, even if it's by Zoom of other Christians, and but mainly just continuing in the practices of my morning devotions. Right now I'm in Mark. I'm married to a pastor, a reverend, and you know, a pastor's whiskey is his books. And so we've got books galore. And so I have lots of commentaries. So I'm going through a big, nice commentary on, on the book of Mark, which is, it's, it has a little devotional aspect to it too. And then I'll say too, Tom is so strong now. He, he looks like he doesn't waver a bit. And as we sit at church, our little church, our live stream, our church lives is very well done, a live streaming that they do our service. And so everyone can be at home and go on their computer and we can sing along and read along and responsive reading. I don't know if that's what you're able to do or not, but it's, made, it's nice to be able to sit there close to each other and look at the computer and sing and make little comments to each other. No one else can hear it. And I can see that his comments the Lord is really comforting him and keeping him strong and never wa wavering him. He's, he, doesn't, he doesn't waver. He might, he just doesn't tell me. But he doesn't appear to be wavering at all as far as is the Lord going to leave me in this. He knows the Lord's going to take him with him. And, and I can tell that that's helpful to me because I don't have a lot of people around me. And so I'm not having to hold him up. We're just kind of holding each other up and he's doing quite well. Those are the things, but I would say probably just going on my normal things that I get strength from is the word and prayer and fellowship with other people. And um, that's what I'm finding. Not, nothing different. Nothing, it's not a special book I'm reading or anything. Yeah. So I do have a book and I did want it's called A Sacred Sorrow. Have you? Mm -hmm. uh, Michael Card. Okay. It's, it's about uh, the lost language of laments, how we have lament in the Bible. Jesus and Job and David and Jeremiah and Habakkuk and all these properly crying out to the Lord in the beautiful laments. And so I did want to bring that up as recommended to me by our uh, mission psychologist who has to work with people, missionaries who have, uh, have hard times on the field and she has, and have to go through different hard things. She recommended this book. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for sharing it. Um, yeah, we, we spoke briefly about favorite Bible verses and I'm wondering if the ones that you referred to earlier or if you have other ones to share. Well, I felt like when you asked me that, that it's like someone asking now, which one is your favorite child? Yeah. <laughs> so, when you have a brood of, of, of dozens. Yes. And so which one I would say, okay, this is the one I'm going to do. So it's 
Romans 8, and, and as I said earlier, Romans is a book that really brought me to Christ. So I find myself in Romans a lot. And so Romans 8, uh, verses 37 to 39, and Paul is saying, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And to me, I chose it as opposed to one of these other ones, Ephesians 3, I was thinking of, but that's more of a prayer and a request. I chose this because this is a statement of fact, and this is something you can grip. And it was given to me the night that Jimmy died and the friends from the, the Bible college and the seminary started coming in to be with me. Uh, one of the assistant pastor's wives uh, walked me around and around the hospital. We were having to wait for some sort of decision the doctors needed made about a form. I can't remember now what, what needed to be done. I couldn't leave right away. They wanted me to hang around. So as we were walking around outside the emergency room, she quoted this to me. And of course, you think in that she was comforting me that death cannot separate us from the love of God. And that was her point. And that's so true. But through my life, I have found that other things besides death tempt me to be separated. And one thing it says, I am sure that neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God. And I feel at times life can come in the way. And even not just death or sickness, but good things and oh that was another thing about contentment we can be very much con discontent with too much stuff there's a lot of things that paul had said about he was content even in times when he abounded as well when he was low so i'm saying that even life the things in life particularly in a woman's life can pull us away but that nothing, even those things of life can and ultimately can't separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's when I'm taking comfort now because I'm not facing death and Tom isn't either, but he's facing other things and we're not going to be separated from the love of God. It's going to just continue during this time and we're going to feel it and know it and trust it and stand on it. That's why I chose this one instead of the other five children <laughs> yeah. my other favorite my favorites yeah thank you for sharing that i'm gonna to have to draw our chat to close because i'm checking out the time and i've got to get going with my kids yes. this morning um, sure. but yeah it is so good to chat to you and i feel like i could chat for hours more well i've enjoyed it so much that you just haven't changed a bit and, and neither of you how is that possible <laughs>
We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Lydia Project. We would love you to share this episode with others, whether that be by word of mouth, social media, or leaving a review on iTunes. You can find us on most platforms using the handle at TLPCWCW. Special thanks goes to our platform host, the Gospel Coalition Australia. Music is Wholesome 7 by Dave Depper, and voiceover is by me, Jennifer Mary.